Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry on a wide range of topics in Christian classical education. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. Today's conversation is between Matthew Bianco and Katerina Kern, in which they discuss the gods of the Homeric pantheon. While the gods in the Iliad and the Odyssey appear in various myths and plays of ancient Greece, Homer gives us a particular view of them that has been studied and debated by everyone from Greek philosophers to church fathers to modern scholars. Let's listen as Katya and Matt lend their voices to the conversation. Today we're going to be talking about Homer. So that's both the Iliad and the Odyssey. And we really want to grapple today with the gods in Homer. So Matt, I have a question for you. What do you think the nature of the gods are? Let's start with something really simple. <laughs> oh, it's so easy. The nature of the gods. Okay, let me let me ask, let me let me give more context for that question, because that's Yeah, please. <laughs> really broad. Okay. So a lot of my students when we're reading Homer think that the gods are really fickle, and even sometimes the students say things like that they're very human. And I wonder if they are very human. I try, I'm trying to understand the nature of the gods themselves. Is there a different, are they different in degree or in kind to humans? Is there a different nature to the gods or do they have human nature? Is hmm. that more, more of a helpful question? Yes. I think that maybe right before that, though, we need to consider are we answering the question with the assumption that the Greeks created the gods in their own image? Or are we assuming that the gods are what they are and then humans imitate them? Humans become like them. So, could, well, right, because I mean, that's the question, right? Like yes, in Christianity, of course, the the theology is that man was created in God's image. Mm -hmm. And so God's image comes first and then man comes from that. Um, the, uh, the accusation of course, is that humans have always just invented gods in their own image. Right. And that the Christians are doing that, that the pagans did that Greek, Roman, whoever. Um, but the thing is like, even if you accept that premise for a second, that, you know, the atheist, argument that human beings create gods in their own image no human beings ever think that's what they're doing right right so i think to be fair to the greeks uh or to well, the greeks in this case because we're talking about homer to be fair to the greeks even if we think that the greeks may have created the gods in their own image that's not how the greeks would have seen it mm -hmm. so to be fair to them then let's assume can we assume from their perspective that the gods are what they are and now are, are do humans behave the way they do because they act like the gods? Um, right. Or are the gods really just kind of like superhero, super powered humans? They're not, by nature, they're not really different. Then that gets us to that question, right? Yeah, well, I mean, hopefully we can read, or my goal anyway, you can tell me if you have the same goal, is that we can read Homer without any of these presuppositions about whether the humans are creating God in their own image or the gods have created them in their image or vice, whatever the relationship is there. Um, and we can let Homer tell us what he believes about the relationship between the gods and the humans. Mm -hmm. So we're not bringing those presuppositions to it. So ideally, I'd like to start without either of those presuppositions. Okay. So let's just assume then that they're there. However they got there, they are there. The gods are there. Not the presuppositions. Right. Gods are there. The yes. humans are there. We don't yes. know which came first, the chicken or the egg, we but don't they're know. there. Okay. Unless Homer makes it clear in the text, we don't know it. Right. Right. If, if Homer's answering our question. Right. I think that is a different nature in the Homeric view of the gods. There is a different nature, a difference of kind. Okay. Insofar as... Although when I start explaining it, I might sound like I'm describing degrees. So you, you correct me. But insofar as the gods are immortal, okay. insofar as the gods are, you know, far more powerful. That's the degree thing, though, maybe. The gods are, are subject to a different order, a different kind of set of rules okay. than the humans are. Okay. 
that they they obey different law like the laws like the the laws that they obey if there are any but if the laws that they obey are not the exact same set of laws that the humans obey like those laws get filtered through the gods and then the humans obey a filtered set of laws that that might prioritize different things or or um apply to circumstances differently because the gods don't have the same kind of circumstances that the humans do so i think i would say they're different in time because of that so the gods have a different set of laws because they're in different circumstances is that what you're saying Mm -hmm. but is that a difference of kind Um, tell me how that relates to the difference in kind well i mean as beings they have they have different laws they have a different lifespan none i mean Uh perpetual Uh um and they have different um different powers so the whole thing together makes them of a different kind the combination of many different degrees makes them different in kind maybe they're just a difference of degree i don't know i i don't know i have to keep thinking about it we have to work through it yeah i don't know either that's why i'm asking i'm not sure I mean, take an example like this, right? Zeus overthrows Kronos. Right. But no human is allowed to overthrow his father without punishment from the gods, right? Like patricide is like one of the worst sins you can commit and, um, and is punishable by, you know, the gruesome death of the fates or the furies rather. So you have... Like, like there, there's like a law that apparently does not apply to the gods that does apply to. But doesn't it apply to the gods at the same time in which it applies to the humans? Like the reason that patricide is such a problem is that Zeus in overcoming his father has established order. And if anyone then overcame Zeus, there would be a problem. So in order for him, like it's, it's it's a matter time is an important variable in the overcoming of time. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe, but I don't know if we get that in Homer. Okay. Sure. Maybe we do That's though. My escape okay. Clause. My escape clause is the well, I don't know, maybe, but not Homer. I, that's fair. I think we might get it there, but in order to figure that out, I think we need to come back to what you said about laws. What what are the laws that preside over the gods? And what are the, well, I mean, you, we, we'll mention a few of the top laws that preside over man, but those ones are more obvious. So what are the laws that preside over the gods? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think the only one that I could, that I could really just know for sure from Homer is the will of Zeus. Mm-hmm. Um, the will of Zeus is a law that has to be obeyed. Um, otherwise there are consequences. I mean, you can, you can, you, you can disobey it. Like it's possible to disobey it, Mm -hmm. but you can't disobey it without consequences. Um, and so I think that, I think that the the will of Zeus is the only law that all the gods have to obey. Um, the, uh, there's a question about fate Mm -hmm. and most people that I, that I've talked to about this, with respect to any of the epics, including Virgil, will say that the gods in Greek and Roman theology are subject to fate. Like fate is the highest, the highest governor. But I think there's a lot of evidence actually in Homer and Virgil for that matter um, that says that fate can be thwarted. Okay. Mm. But that doesn't mean it's still not the highest God because you just said like Zeus can be thwarted. Zeus thwarted his father who can be thwarted and he was time. So simply being able to be thwarted does not mean you are not the highest power, right? Well, but there's no consequences for, I mean, I really not that there's no consequences for, but I don't know. I don't know that fate comes along and enforces itself. Like you can, you can shorten one's life or you can extend one's life. Okay. I want to explore And if the fates are the ones who set the lifespan. Right. But the, but the, but a lifespan can be changed by the gods. So there's only one time in the Aeneid when fate is thwarted and that's Dido. 
who it says, Virgil says, she killed herself before her fate. Mm -hmm. But then you could argue that she is, she does receive the consequences of that. Although you could argue that she doesn't. It's complicated. Because in the next life, she's not actually in the realm of those who've committed suicide. She's in the realm of thwarted lovers. So it gets complicated there in terms of whether there's consequences for her thwarting fate and also what Virgil even means in that line by saying that she thwarted fate. In Homer, tell me a time when fate is thwarted. There are, there, I don't know, I, I don't know of any, I can't think of any of what off the top of my head of any specific places where, where it says something like it does in Virgil, where it says okay. like, and you know, thus dying before his appointed time. Um, although it, the, the language sounds familiar to me, so it feels like it's there, but I can't think of any specifics. Um, the only the only time that I can the only time that I can think of as an example of this is when Zeus desires to save Sarpedon, mm -hmm. and yeah. and he's told that in the text it says that he could do it if he wanted to, mm -hmm. but if he does, all the other gods will be mad because they weren't allowed to save their favorite humans. Mm -hmm. And and then Zeus is like, all right, you're, yeah, I won't do it. I'm not going to save my son. Mm -hmm. um, so there's the, and because the, his son is not going to die because he's fated to die. And so then the, the, the conversation is about what you could, you could change the, the, I mean, you could re ignore that and extend his life but it wouldn't be fair to all of us who didn't get, didn't do that for our children. Yeah. But see, this gets really complicated with fate because it's possible that if he was fated to die, then that conversation was inevitable that they would say, it's not just for you to save Sarpedon. And then Zeus would realize it's not just for him to save his son. And therefore he dies. I mean, it's possible that fate was never able to be thwarted because that conversation had to happen and Zeus had to give it to justice. So fate still came about. <laughs> Like you can't with when yeah. it comes to fate, you can't argue that that line of reasoning that I think oh, you can. Well, I think you can because if <laughs> if it wouldn't have they wouldn't have to they all they would have had to say was go ahead and try. But you fate, can't stop it. But fate could have known that Zeus would be just. Okay. But now I'm attributing conscientious thought to fate, which I don't think Homer does. I don't know. Oh, but okay, okay. So so that's the example where maybe fate can be thwarted. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the ultimate power may or may not be fate. But then beneath that, it's certainly the will of Zeus. I agree that the will of Zeus seems to be the highest. The highest law, law of land. Yeah. Law of the mountain. Right. I do think that above that, fate resides. Do you think fate dwells above the will of Zeus? Even um, if it can be thwarted? Yeah, I I don't know, because I almost think that the fate, that fate is the will of Zeus mm -hmm. in Homer. Mm -hmm. um, so, it's almost like, it's almost like, if, if to go back to the Sar Sarpedon and Sarpedon conversation, it's almost like Zeus is acknowledging that if he were to save his son, mm -hmm. then these other things his will is trying to affect would not come, would not be possible. And like giving Achilles the glory and the destruction of Troy and everything, right? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like that's what he's giving into is less their arguments and more and more my overall plan is what would be messed up so it's almost like he's trying to violate his own will like his his he has two wills in conflict with one another yes and then one of those is aligned with the fates and one of those is not and he he has to go with the one that's aligned with the fates i mean that that is okay the fates or whatever so that's a very personified mode of expressing the god that he would have these two wills that are conflicted with each other um do you think that that that's an appropriate way to think of the gods as if they are beings that have these conflicting wills or do you think of them as more an expression of an idea 
right? I don't know if our readers have heard these theories before of the gods just being a personification or an expression of an abstract idea. Um, our listeners. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I mean, are we saying from the perspective of the Greeks generally, or are we talking about from Homer again? From Homer. I don't think Homer presents them as personifications of ideas. You don't think so? Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I think he presents them as real beings. Huh. Or or maybe... Okay, so let me, let me say what I think about them and you tell me if you agree. Because I don't know if we're disagreeing or not. Okay. Although I think we might be. <laughs> moment we've all been waiting for. <laughs> it seems to me that the gods are a phenomenological explanation of the world. So Homer's looking out and he's seeing co- deep in important concepts like justice and attributing a force to that. But then he's also seeing things like love and warfare and wisdom and the home and all the, you know, motherhood and the things that were attributed to that when Homer was writing. And then he's imbuing these things or imbuing personified beings with these things because he's seeing how strong these things are. So he's saying, okay, here we have wisdom. This is a force that truly acts on men in the world. And I'm going to explain that through Athena. So he he sees all that wisdom does. And then he says, and then wisdom caused this man to go do this. And then we just rewrite wisdom as Athena. And then Athena caused this man to go do this. And then we see that with all of the gods. And then the reason that I think this is because I don't see the gods as imperfect humans. It doesn't look like they're flawed. They just go around doing all of these flawed human things. Like people often say that about Zeus because he sleeps around or about Hera because she's fickle. Um, But it seems to me like they're actually a perfect expression of one power in the world or one force. They're, they're They're a perfect holistic expression of one force. And so Hera is wholly devoted to the home and to motherhood and the things associated with that. So she acts in ways that we think are sinful or foolish or fickle. Um, But that's because she's not a full human. She doesn't have to, she doesn't have to act in all the spheres that humans have to act in. She only has to be the force of motherhood. Right. And so she can put Zeus to sleep and then play around in the war. And she can enact vengeance and hate certain people just because their husband slept with them and, you know, go after the entire Trojans for, for being insulted, for being not the most beautiful because she's not supposed to be a whole human who has all these many varied virtues. She's supposed to be this one force. Right. And so she with Athena or with Mars, with, with any of them really who, sorry, I'm combining the Roman and the Greek here because we're talking Homer and Virgil, but with any of these characters, um, they are, Every time they act, they act perfectly as the force that they are representing, which is why Hera, I think, when she does put Zeus to sleep, she has to first go to Aphrodite and get the robe from Aphrodite that she hands to women in order to seduce men. Then she has to go to sleep and get sleep to help her put Zeus to sleep because she's not all these forces. She's the one force. Mm -hmm. And if she were human, if Homer were presenting people who have multiple complex personalities and and powers, then he would have very easily just written that she seduced her husband. Like that would have been a very simple thing to write, but instead he added in all these extra gods. And I think that's one of the many places that we see these gods acting only as what they are. I, I don't, I think we agree. Probably the part that we would, if we're disagreeing, the part we disagree on is not even important to the conversation because if I understand what you just described, so you're describing that there's these, these abstract ideas and that they get embodied by these beings that Homer creates and calls them by 
Yeah, like abstract ideas, forces in the world, and then the forces in the world, which are truly, I mean, it is accurate that we see thunder and lightning changing reality. And it is accurate that we see wisdom and anger changing our physical reality. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's the personification of those forces, which are the extension of an abstract concept. Yeah, I probably, I probably just reversed the ordering of it. In, in, insofar as I actually, I actually think the exact same thing about the gods that you're saying, the way you're describing the gods, but I don't see him as creating the gods in order to, in, in order to bring this force into the story with a personality, but rather, or in the, in, in the form of a person, but rather that there are these gods and each of these gods has one of those personalities or one of those is, is, is the embodiment of one of those forces. Oh, so you think that Homer believes in this pantheon that he's presenting? What well, I think that's what's presented in the text. Yeah. Okay. So, so I, so that means at the same time that I think that I think that what you're describing about that is true. Right. So I don't see Hera as, as a, um, uh, a sinful human that's just more powerful um, and immortal. And I don't see Zeus or whatever as more sinful or more powerful or whatever. Um, I see them as living out the specific quality that they, that is, that they are. Mm -hmm. So, um, so you have Athena as wisdom, you have Aphrodite as, you know, love and beauty of, you know, Aries as war, you have Hera as the, you know, the home and motherhood. And, um, every time they act, they're acting within the bounds of their, th their particular thing. But what they're having to do in the Pantheon is modulate themselves. Yeah. Right. So then, so then, you know, wisdom has to be modulated by love and love has to be modulated by motherhood and mother has to be modulated by life and life has to be modulated by war and whatever. Right. And all, there there's, so they're trying to like figure out, I mean, what individually what they're doing is I'm fighting on behalf of these people because they better and they better fulfill who I am. Right. The humans on earth, the humans on earth. Right. So, so Hera is fighting on behalf of the Greeks because they are trying to correct the wrong that the Trojans committed, which was against her, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then each of the gods is doing that. Each of the gods has chosen a side basically on those, something right. related to that, right? Um, but, but then amongst each other, they're trying to like negotiate their own relationships with respect to, with respect to, well, I want motherhood to be honored properly. Right. I want the home to be honored properly. Well, I want, I want war to get its, slake right and it's fulfill its satisfy its thirst for blood and i want wisdom to you know reign and and whatever and and in in an individual human being i do all that myself right ideally right right like exactly. i have all of those same tendencies and qualities and characteristics and i'm having to modulate those right and as i figure out which one is going to kind of govern this situation um mm -hmm. but in the godhead it's like completely different people entities doing it you don't right? they're all others to each other you don't think it's, it's all internally well i mean it is in the oh yes so in a second yeah yeah in the pantheon in the pantheon ultimately it's zeus ultimately okay. it is life yes that dictates what's gonna reign supreme when and where yeah right? um but but until he speaks, until he makes those things happen, until he indicates to them, they're all trying to figure it out as they go. So when Hera does what she does, then she's looking to Zeus for support. Mm -hmm. But until he gets, she gets that support, or doesn't, or it, or gets told no, she just is trying to do it until until she does know. Yeah. Right. Right. So they're all acting on their own according. Not according to not according to wisdom or whatever, but according to what they're what they're that what they're the god of. Yeah. I'm the god of this, so this has to be this has to be the determinant in this situation, in all situations, right? But then they're trying to do that with each other. And sometimes they bend to each other and sometimes they give in to each other. But ultimately it it, it almost always ends with Zeus having to say, 
this is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. We're not doing that. Right. Mm-hmm. So he's the modulator of it all. Yeah. Um, so is the Iliad then ultimately, and maybe also the Odyssey, but at least the Iliad, um, the, the cosmos attempting to find this harmony and it's life that's bringing the cosmos into harmony. That's ultimately what we see throughout the whole book. Would you say? Yeah. If we, <coughs> if we take, if we take Zeus as the representative of life, the God of yeah. life, right? Yeah. Zoe, Zeus, it's like, that's where we get the word zoology from, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, that Which, it's, it's life that's having to ultimately modulate when wisdom and motherhood and war and, you know, beauty and love and all those things are going to, um, going to get their, their due or their parts, right? Play their parts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't you well, that made me think of another question, but I want, I want to come back to that. This is a little bit tangential, but is that why Zeus isn't actually sinning um, when he's like going around sleeping with the different women on earth? And, you know, we re- we don't typically don't even read these stories to our kids because sometimes it's rape, sometimes it's shocking, sometimes it's horrifying. Um, no matter what, it's sexual promise, sexually promiscuous. And so we just kind of from a human perspective. Right? Yeah, so, from our right, perspective. Right. But he is life. He is the generator of life. That's who he is. So in order for the myth writers and for Homer to express him as himself, this is an essential component of that, that he is he's bringing forth life. Right. I, th- I think so. I think I think that's that's um, I mean, I think that's the way that it has to be understood with, with respect to Zeus. Right. Um, is that he is he is he is life itself life yeah it, it, it explodes from him it has to come it has to issue forth and if he's not doing that then he's not being life and and if he's not doing that and he's not being life then i mean probably life would cease to exist right, right. i mean just wouldn't the cosmos wouldn't even be possible right in in the in the um that theology so it it's 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 probably not even something that he could hold back. Yeah, right. That he right. Have, which is why, like, so there's the, I think there's an allusion to this in the Iliad. It doesn't come up explicitly, but this prophecy, right, that that the son of um, the son of Thetis, who's Achilles' mother, that the son of Thetis would give birth to a son who would overthrow his father, mm-hmm. or who it doesn't say he would overthrow his father. It just says that he would be he would be greater than his father. Mm -hmm. And so Zeus has to, Zeus arranges a marriage between Thetis and Peleus, the um, Achilles father. So that, so that Thetis's son would be a human born son. So that the son who we now know as Achilles would be greater than his father, but he would be greater than a human, Mm -hmm. right? Because, because Zeus could not withhold, he could not have withheld himself from her. Uh, right like yeah. if she had not been married off and, and and been forced to give birth to a human son when it happened right, right he would eventually have impregnated her right um and given birth to that son but then that son would have been the thing that overthrew all of yes would have been greater than life and would have overthrown the cosmos as we know it right right so which maybe speaks to this very deep truth that i think is expressed in that story that there's always a risk and a danger to to good and especially very powerful good, right? So when you've got this life-giving force that constantly is giving forth life, it has to, by definition, it has to have the threat of death come back at it. Right, right, right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was. It's, what's fascinating to me about this is that I, I think Homer presents this whole pantheon, right? Yeah, and presents it as. I, you know, I mean, does he believe in it? I don't know. I, I, that's not really. It's not useful. It's not even an appropriate question, really. Because um, we, if we'd have to go down a whole trail of what believe means, it's not not yeah, worthwhile. It's just a separate episode. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what you get then is like, well, well, this is the world I live in, and the world I live in is understood right. by these people or these gods, right? Yeah. And so. I understand the world the way I understand it because of the way I understand them, the people that, that I'm singing to, that I'm, you know, rhapsoding to, 
can you change Rapsode into a verb? Um, we can change Google into a verb. I can change Rapsode into a verb. Um, the people that I'm rhapsoding to, this is how they understand the world that they live in, This how, because this is how they understand the gods. And so he's just speaking in the language and then the, the theology that everybody knows and accepts right. and lives with. Um, does that mean that he really thinks if he were able to get to the top of Mount Olympus, he would find them there? I don't know. Probably not, but it doesn't matter. I don't know that it matters. Um, the, uh, but anyway, so, so what he does is he has this, this world of the gods that he's kind of presenting, he's pulling together and kind of representing now in this particular context. And in, and in, in the Iliad and in the Odyssey, you get accounts of the, 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 the backstory of all these heroes, mm -hmm. right? Like this hero is the son of this guy. Who's the son of this guy. Who's the son of this guy. Who's the son of this God, because mm -hmm. this God slept with his mother or grandmother or whatever, but she thought it was her husband when it happened. Right. Right. So, so this, this, this person, Odysseus, for example, is the son of Zeus several generations removed because Zeus gave life to this woman, but the woman didn't know it was Zeus when it happened. She thought it was her husband, almost always, right? I don't remember if that's actually the case in Odysseus' story. She might have known. I don't, sometimes they do know, sometimes they don't. Yeah, I don't know. But anyways, there's so many storylines of these heroes in the Iliad and in the in the um, Odyssey because in the book where Odysseus goes to Hades, he encounters all the women, right? And the women tell him, yeah. oh, this is how, you know, this is this is the story of, of how I got my son. And I got my son because, you know, Poseidon tricked me and I thought it was my husband, but it was really Poseidon. And then afterwards he revealed himself to me and said, your sons are going to be my sons, the sons of a God. And, you know, so take good care of them kind of thing. Right. And then he disappears. Right. And, and so what you have is, is this constant retelling of this story where human beings are being deceived or whatever, deceived by the gods um, into giving birth to heroic sons and then, and then at the end of the Odyssey, you have basically the formula being given to the Greek people by Homer on here's how you can avoid that. And this is what I think is happening with Penelope nice. when she gives, she, cause so Odysseus comes back, he's disguised, nobody recognizes him, right? Um, he encounters his son. He, he reveals himself first to his son, right? And he reveals himself to his son. And his son's like, no, 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 you're not my dad. You got to prove it to me. And then he's like, listen, I'm your dad. And it's not appropriate for you to question me on this. I'm right here. And then Telemachus is like, okay. <laughs> and then he just accepts it, right? And then they go into the village or into the, to the city and into the home. And then Eurycleia recognizes him, the, the, the nurse, because she sees the scar on his on his leg, right? Mm -hmm. And then he has to like threaten her. Can I demonstrate it so they can no, see? No, no, okay. there's no need. Oh. Well, he grabs her by the throat and says, "You tell anybody, I'll kill you. Because uh, if you tell anybody, I'll die. It, it'll lead to my death, right?" Um, so then she agrees to keep the secret, and then eventually he reveals himself to the swineherd and the cowherd. And um, wait, the cowherd's the good one, right? The goat herd is the bad one. Goat herd is the bad one. So there's a cow herd and a swine herd that are good guys. Yes. And then the goat herd is the bad guy. All right, yeah. sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell. Yeah. Um, I bet that's not a coincidence. Probably not. So, um, so he reveals himself to them, and then, and then they, you know, they have the whole shootout with the suitors, mm -hmm. right? Then Penelope sleeping through all of that somehow, mm -hmm. um, and then, then Euryclea goes up to wake up Penelope. She tells Penelope, and I, and I think she even tells Penelope that she knows because she saw the scar. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Penelope still doubts, right? And then Odysseus appears to Penelope, or they meet, they encounter. Penelope, he says who he is. Penelope denies it. Telemachus says, Mom, it's him. you got to believe. And then Odysseus, who, when Telemachus challenged him, chastised him and said, why are you, you can't, it's not appropriate for you to challenge me. But now Telemachus is imitating his father and chastising the mother for not believing. And, and Odysseus says, no, Telemachus, let your mother put me on trial. 
And Thomas is like, and this is what he says. These are not exact words, but he says something like this. Okay, whatever you say, you are known for having the best counsel in all things. And then, you know, the wisest counsel in all things. And then he leaves. And then it's the two of them, right? And she puts him on trial. And it's, of course, it's the thing with the bed. And she tries him with the bed. He passes the test. And then they reunite. Then, after that, the next day, they go to see his father, Laertes. And it's the same thing. Odysseus tells him that he's somebody else, pretends he's somebody else. Then Laertes responds. And then Odysseus is like, psych, it's me. And... And then Laertes is like, well, how do I know it's you? And then Odysseus tells him or shows him maybe the scar. And then Laertes is like, he tells him the story of the scar is what he does. And then Laertes is like, it's you. And then they embrace, right? Mm -hmm. And then the book ends. It's over. I mean, other stuff happens and then it's over. But but anyways, long story short, it's not my story though. It's, it's Homer's. There's this entire process of testing, but especially between the husband and the wife, right? Yeah. Where... Homer is teaching them, intentionally or not, I'm not, I don't know, but Homer yeah. is teaching the Greek people how to not be deceived by the gods who, all prior to that, the first part of this book and in all of the previous book, he's reminded them over and over again, this is what the gods do to you. Yeah. They deceive you and they make you carry their babies. I've never thought about that, how the gods throughout the book are impregnating the women. And so here's like the warning. Yeah. I've never thought about that. That's so brilliant. Well done. Thanks. <laughs> Which makes me wonder something. Yes. Okay. Homer's a Greek pagan. Yeah. And, sure. and I think that there's a sense in which he's presenting the gods as full embodiments of what they are. Like you said, Full embodiments of what they are, the singular thing that they are, or the mm -hmm. you know two or three things that they are. And that when they're acting in accordance with that, they're not sinful the way a human might be because they don't have that other thing to modulate their behavior. Right. They only have the one thing that they embody, right? Right, so they're they undivided always. In, yeah, they have to act in accord with that. Right. Right. So I think he is presenting it, presenting them to us in that way, and yet also showing us how, showing them how, and us, how insufficient a Godhead that would be. And how, how we even still, even though they're acting in accordance with their nature in a good way, yeah. we still might need to reevaluate that. And we might even need to know how to protect ourselves from it. Hmm. Hmm. Like, is that, is that Achilles? Right? So Achilles is, I think he's having this existential crisis at the brokenness of the world. Up until this point, he's kind of black and white, thought that the world fit into these certain forms. And he thought, if I do certain things, certain consequences will come to me. He like the world follows these patterns. And then he realizes that it doesn't, that there's a broken, a deep, deep, deep brokenness in the world. That is there, there's this injustice that can lie within the cosmos. And I think he has this existential crisis. He doesn't know what to do with that. And that's why he gets the shield, which is the well-ordered cosmos. He has the, this vision of a properly ordered cosmos. And that's what he carries out with him when he's faced with the loss of, of someone that he truly deeply loves. So he has these two moments of resurrection. But what's the better word for that in Greek where you you have like a a turning around? What's the, maybe maybe metanoia is the word I'm looking for. Tell, I'll, I'll describe you. Tell me if that's the right word. So he has the first moment of metanoia when he, when Patroclus dies, he decides to go back into battle. He gets the shield and then he returns, but he's still the same Achilles to some extent. He's still um, driven by this angst that's deeper than anger. So he even fights the river. He, he, the gods say we're afraid that he's going to defeat fate Right when he's going up to the walls, they're like, "Oh no, he has the ability to overcome fate. We have to get involved." Oh, yeah. yeah. Why did you give me that before? <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting to see what you would say. 
so so Achilles knows um sorry Achilles is angry and he's he's not yet had his his next I think more important metanoia which is when he when he accepts the brokenness of the world and makes it right which is the funeral games for practicalists so he he pulls out of the whole cosmos in in the games we see sort of a microcosm of the macrocosm and the games being the microcosm he enacts justice on multiple levels and and if you look at the different injustices that happened and the way he reconciles them they parallel different injustices within the the epic poem as a whole that he had witnessed or undergone or experienced up to this point so it, it is the microcosm that he's finding harmony or creating harmony within because he's now come to a point where he's more human because of his love for Patroclus and his realization of what Patroclus has taught him. Because Patroclus says to him many times, I'm glad I don't have as hard a heart as you do. So it's it's the loss of that love that makes him more human. And then the most important part, I think, is when Priam comes to him and they share a meal and they look into each other's eyes and they cry and he has the real metanoia where he becomes... He transcends the need to impose justice on the cosmos and he allows there to be grace in the midst of a broken cosmos and he returns Hector's body to Priam. Right now he's he's fully human and then he dies. It's this it's this journey that he undergoes towards mortality, towards death. And in order to get there, he has to go through being more and more human along the path. Um this is entrapment entrapment it is because you know that i don't think that way about achilles and now you're trying to like present this whole scenario where i have to go against my long-held belief about achilles but i don't think it's going to work because i can i think i can i can see i can agree with everything that you're saying um but I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put, I don't, I don't, I can do it without describing Achilles in negative terms along the way. Right. I was just going to say that the, the particularities of the argument, I think are unnecessary because we can find them in other places in the text as well. But I'm, I'm trying to get at this idea that maybe Homer is presenting another way, or maybe I'm looking for embodiments of what you said of how humans need to find a way to relate to the gods in this cosmos where the gods are unreliable if they are, if unreliable is even the right word for that, um, where the gods aren't always working well, where we shouldn't always follow the gods. I'll phrase it that way. Humans, because we are humans, shouldn't always follow any god, right? I mean, that's what we see in Virgil. I think in Virgil, it's a lot more blatant. Homer's a more, more nuanced. But in Virgil, it's very clear that Aeneas needs to follow certain gods and not others. He just doesn't get to stay with Dido. He just, he doesn't have that option. He can't, he can't, he can't lean towards the mother and the home until the time is right. And so he has to constantly be pulled forward. Even though we would say valuing your marriage, valuing the mother, valuing the home is a virtue. Being focused on that God isn't the direction that he ought to take. So maybe instead of thinking about following certain gods, it's more useful to think about where your focus is directed. Yeah, I think, I think um, what I think the way I would want to describe it is I think Homer's a little bit more, I don't know, careful, but I think maybe he's a little bit more generous even to the gods and to their, into the human relationship with them in, in this way. I, I don't think he thinks it's bad that they are what they are. And I don't think he thinks it's bad that, that the um, cosmos might actually be ordered this way and that humans might have to interact with it this way. I think he just sees it as insufficient. Like they, this is the problem that we're, that we have to live with. If this is the way the universe actually, the cosmos actually is ordered. This is the problem we have to live with. That unless Zeus has everybody under control and is actually modulating all of their behaviors and their relationships, which is not what's happening most of the time because he goes to sleep, because he goes on trips, because he gets distracted, right? Because life 
yeah. goes to sleep, life yeah. goes on trips, life gets distracted, right? Yeah. Um, that because that happens, then you get these kind of like um, fickle or or what's the word arbitrary? Not arbitrary. What's the other word for arbitrary? Like I'm not sure what word you're looking for. Um, well, like we don't we can't understand why it's happening the way it is. Like it doesn't make sense to us. So so it feels arbitrary to us, but it's, okay. but it's not, uh, and, but it might not be right. So I don't know which God is messing with me. Or I mean, interacting with me or with my situation right now, right? Not just like me personally, but so I'm, I'm in this situation and then there's some God present. I can't see. Right. But this God is kind of like ordering this particular situation, but I don't know, is that the God of war? Is it the God of wisdom? Right. Is it the God of the household? Is it the God of beauty and love? So then I don't like, I'm going into this thinking, because I I can ha I do have all of those attributes to greater and lesser degrees, right? And I am trying to modulate those. And so I walk into a situation and I think, okay, this is a situation where the only thing that I can do is go to war, and then all of a sudden I'm having sexual intercourse with somebody because okay. because Venus is actually governing the situation, not Aries. Ah, I see. Right. So right. I'm I have love and war in me. Right. Right. And then I'm going into a situation thinking, here's how I'm going to interact with it because this is the right one. But that, that God's not there. This other God is there. Yeah. And then boom, something completely, it was a bad example to say, bring sexual intercourse into it. But the point is something completely opposite of what I thought was going to be the way to handle it is what ends up happening because that God is the one that's there, right? Unless Zeus is always ordering yeah. and he's not. Yeah. So I think what, what, what Homer is kind of picturing is like, look, Aries is a god to follow and to and to obey and to to submit to in the right situations. Yeah. And with, and Athena is and Venus is and Hera is and Zeus is etc. Hephaestus, right? The problem is the you don't know which one's going to show up. Yeah. And they're incapable of modulating themselves unless they're all present and Zeus is governing. Precisely. Yeah. So yeah. I think I think that's what he's presenting is like the world kind of the world's the world this this ordering of the universe is kind of inadequate because it it is inadequate because of that the potential for that unless is is he saying unless Zeus is presiding so then then the imperative to the audience is to allow Zeus to preside so well, I'll let you answer that question for I think that's the direction he's pushing us in. Okay. Because every time things are ordered properly and everything time every time things you see things happening in the Iliad or the Odyssey where it does happen properly, it's because of Zeus's instruction. Because of Zeus's blessing, because of yeah. Zeus's commands, right? Because the will of Zeus was made known and then it happens that way. Especially if you see everybody submitting to that. Right. And obeying it, right? Sometimes they try to sneak behind his back and do something anyways, and then they get then they get busted. Yeah, right? doesn't work out. Like that time Athena, and then he's like, "Hey," and then Athena goes back all sheepishly, right, uh -huh. in the Iliad. So, so yeah, I, I think what he's pushing us towards, pushing them towards, is man, if it, if it could just always be like that, yeah, that would be that. That's the cosmos we want. Yes, right, right. He's embedding a desire for a unified mm -hmm. cosmos and unified by an authority by the one. The will, right. the life, being the authority that that rules over all. This makes me think of um, the medieval idea of, and I mentioned it earlier, but the microcosm and the macrocosm. But the medieval notion that it, within the individual man or woman, um, we have the entire cosmos that we have to order inside of us, and it's a reflection of the whole cosmos as a whole. So the the cosmos is the macrocosm our individual soul and body, our relationships between ourselves. We are the mi microcosm and we have to, in the medieval notion, it's we have to align ourselves with the cosmos because that cosmos is ordered and beautiful. And so in order for us to be ordered and beautiful, we have to order mm -hmm. ourselves according to the cosmos. It's almost as if Homer yearns for that cosmos, but isn't brave enough to believe it exists. Or maybe he doesn't have the revelation of it, so he doesn't know that it's there, but he's yearning for it. So he's presenting a world where there can be an ordered cosmos, 
that's that's aligned within this hierarchy that we have to align ourselves to. Um, but he just he gives us glimpses of it in a desire for it. But the Christians then take it the next step with with the medieval notion of the cosmos and, and yeah. bring it to fulfillment. <clears throat> I think, okay. All right, let's put a couple of possibilities out there, right? Yeah. So like, okay, uh, on the on the one hand, one kind of extreme, right? And he has he he doesn't even know what he wants that. Okay. He just he just tells a story that and that's what comes out. Yeah. Because that's what he's feeling, you know, down here somewhere, back here somewhere, in the marrow of his bones somewhere. Because yeah, it's true. He doesn't even know, right? Because it's a true feeling, it's a true yeah. desire. So that's what comes out, even though he doesn't realize it. Yeah. Okay. Next step over, he knows that that's what he wants. And he's, or you know, it's, it's something in that direction, right? And so he's writing a story that kind of nudges his audience toward it without directly attacking their beliefs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So then he's like nudging them toward it, in but in a in a in a, a frame of reference or from a frame of reference that they can live with yeah. right, and accept. The uh, the other part of it, or the next one, I guess, would be, no, no, he does know what it is. He knows it's actually this other way, right? That there is a single God okay. who is governing all of this. Right. And that, um, and that, the, uh, that that's all being represented. But he's talking to people who don't. Yeah. And so he has to represent it in their way. So it's, you're back here now where he's presenting it in a way that they can live with it. But he really is trying to pull them toward this kind of, I mean, it, it really, it's got to be like a monotheistic situation, right? Yeah. Like he sees either, either you have this, this supreme God and then all these little, you know, baby gods, but this one governs all of them. If you're trying to keep the pantheon in some way, or really you have this supreme God and then all of these kind of spiritual servants. Okay. Or, or you have this this God, and then none of those even exist. It's just what the people. It's just how the people have under explained it all, right? Yeah. And so he believes something like that right. in this final scenario, right? He believes yeah. something like that, and he's trying to you know woo them toward it, right? Like create the space for that question in them, yeah, in their yeah. souls, um, that they could then eventually come to a monotheistic view. Is it a little bit like the movie? Um, is it called Inside Out? That Pixar film? Yeah. Where there's like emotions inside? Yeah. Is it a little bit like if a kid watched that movie and actually thought all those emotions were real beings? But it, it like not realizing that it's all all part of one being, right? Isn't Doesn't it right, take place right. within one person? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little girl. So is that a good allegory or not a good allegory, but is that a good analogy for what we're seeing with Homer here? That yeah, if he's this last guy, yeah, if yeah, he's yeah, if he's end. this last, yeah, this last version of him is the him, then yeah, he's, then it would be that would be a good analogy. He's presenting for that. the one being right with mu with much going on, but mm -hmm. we're we're reading it like the kid who watches Inside Out and is like, right, oh yeah, right. that I don't know, fear is fear one of them. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they think like fear is a real being and, and happiness, and, yeah, or joy, whatever you know. Yeah, yeah. See, I don't know. I don't. I I think. I think he's somewhere on that spectrum yeah. because, I mean, even if he's all the way over here, like you said, that would come out of him because it's true. Right. Right. So that, that would necessarily come out. And then that's what we see in the story. Right. But if he's somewhere here, then of course it makes even more obvious sense. I think he's, I think he's necessarily one of those things. I, I know that, I know that, um, Justin, the martyr, Justin Martyr, say Justin Martyr, um, who was who was martyred by, or not by, but during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, mm. that he wrote a, a treatise, a, a letter or whatever, to the Greeks. It is addressed like, to the Greeks, but to the pagans that are living at that time. And he, like, so he starts out in the first part of the text, he starts out going, like, going through and he's saying, look, you guys don't even agree with yourself. Like all these things that you say you believe, your own people don't even believe these things, mm -hmm. right? Like Homer disagrees with 
these other thinkers and within mm -hmm. with himself, right? And then Plato and Socrates doesn't agree with Aristotle. Plato doesn't agree with Aristotle. Aristotle doesn't agree with them. Um, there's all this disagreement between all of these, you know, people that you hold in such high esteem. Then he goes on, um, and they present bad ideas, things that like today we know aren't true. Um, you know, you've got a, a Zeus that's raping and committing adultery, right? Presents all this stuff to them. Um, because at that point, like whatever we're saying about the appropriateness of Zeus's life mm -hmm. issuing forth at that time, like people were fed up with it. Like people were seeing, interpreting Zeus as a rapist and were fed up with it. Right. Understandably so. Of course. Yeah. And then, uh, anyway, so he goes through that with all of their, the, the, the artists, the poets, the philosophers, all of these guys, the playwrights goes through and he shows them how they're all wrong and they, and, and disagree with each other. Then the next section he says, and here's where they're right. Okay. And, and he says, but here's why they had to hide their rightness from you. Ah. And he, and he, and he points, for example, to Socrates being put to death. Right. So when people speak the truth to you, y'all freak out. Oh, yeah, he probably said y'all, but yeah. in, in whatever language and freak you're out. About. And freak out. Yeah. Um, yeah. He probably did use the second person plural. You're correct. <laughs> y'all freak out and you kill people. Right? right. So, you know, obviously Homer and Plato is, are going to hide the right. truth. I mean, they're going to disguise the truth. They're going to wrap it in, put it in wrappings, right? To give it to you. Um, this kind of de deceitful presentation of it. Right. Or, Homer's always going to be Odysseus. Yeah, and he he says that there is evidence in his time. He was saying that there was evidence that Homer had probably encountered um, the uh, had it probably encountered the Hellenistic Jews. Ah, in that, in that day, right? Like Isaiah I is de depending on when you timeline Homer. Yeah, like he's living like before, during, or like shortly after the time of Isaiah. Okay, so. Um, which is, which is, uh, you know, just before or during or after the captivity, right? So the Jews are like there or they're even closer to him. Like the Assyrians mm -hmm. are bringing them closer to the home, to where Homer's from. Okay. Uh, whatever. Right. So there's all these oppor opportunities for interaction with Homer in that time period. And he's saying that he's, he thinks there's evidence that Homer went to, uh, Homer encountered the prophets, the scriptures, and then, and then, and then mm. that's why he's writing this story in a way to like, I can see that represent it as monotheism, like push them towards mono, nudge yeah. them towards monotheism. Right? Yeah. And then he says that there's evidence that Plato, when he took after Socrates dies and he goes on his little journey, his little 10 year journey around the Mediterranean, um, that he would have, or we know he stopped in Alexandria and that in Alexandria, he would have encountered Hellenistic Jews and probably the scriptures in the, um, the, the Greek Septuagint. In fact, okay. the Greek old Testament in the library of Alexandria, like it was known that it was there. Um, in fact, it was translated for the library of Alexandria. Um, and so they know it's there and that Plato would necessarily have encountered that. So then Plato comes back and writes these dialogues where he's nudging them towards a monotheism. We're way off track from yeah. Homer now, but, but so, so Mark, Justin Martyr puts him like over here on the spectrum where I'm like, yeah. I, I mean, I'm okay. Even if he's just here, but Martyr's like, Justin Martyr's like, no, no, we, we're, we're pretty confident he's over here. Yeah. And then apparently, this is a really hard book to get a copy of, but there's a PDF of it floating around that somebody sent me one time. So I have it. Okay. It's really hard to read because it's a bad scan. Okay. But there's a book by um, Sir Walter Raleigh, the, for whom Raleigh, North Carolina is named for, uh, for whom Raleigh of North Carolina is named for period. That's um, what you think most of our listeners are going to need for a trigger for Sir Walter Raleigh. <laughs> It's just funny, like most, like they would well, mostly know more about the man than the city, but okay, <laughs> carry on. But I love Raleigh, North Carolina. <laughs> um, so she's more of a Charlotte, North Carolina person. So she's, yeah. That's the um, queen. <laughs> um, whatever. So he wrote a history or a commentary or something. In which he also makes the case that there's evidence that Homer and Plato 
encountered and interacted with um, Hellenistic Jews and were influenced by them in their writings. Nice. I don't know how much That's of that awesome. he gets from Justin Martyr, but... I'm not surprised. I mean, I I think that we've come to the point just in looking at Homer himself or the, the text themselves to an idea that they're at least positing a monotheistic perspective if they're not um, directly arguing for. Although... Or, 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 I mean, worst case scenario, they're accidentally creating yeah. the desire for one. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. We've, we've run quite the marathon in this conversation. I feel like I've we've um, solved all of the world's problems too. I think we have. Yeah. I mean, if we know how to read Plato and Homer, then that's 99% of the world's problems solved. And the other 1% is Aristotle. So we're good. Thank you for joining us as we refreshed ourselves at Cisterns of Learning dug long ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. Join us next week for another conversation, and be sure to check out the other shows on the Circe Podcast Network.